Revelation chapter 16. We're going to look at the whole chapter. This is a, a lot in this chapter. <laughs> There's so much. Um, we're definitely not going to hit everything, but I'm going to try to get as much we can in our time. And if you have questions or things you want to talk about after, please feel free to talk to me. Um, but I want us to get our bearings down before we dive into this chapter. So I want to give you a proposed outline. There are so many outlines for the book of Revelation. Um, many of them are good. Some of them are kind of wonky. Um, I found one that I thought was good because it's simple and it's straightforward. Um, so um, it's by the scholar Kenneth Gentry Jr. And I did a little changes here and there. But here's the outline. First, let me explain how he got this outline. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation four times says, quote, in the spirit, end quote. He says, he was in the spirit. Four times. First time happens Revelation 1, second time Revelation 4, third time Revelation 17, last time Revelation 21. So the scholar uses those four times as the divisions of the book of Revelation. So here's the brief outline, and I hope that it helps you when you read Revelation. I hope that it helps you as we go throughout the series in Revelation. But chapters 1 to 3, you know, in the spirit, primarily roughly about the churches. Chapters 4 through 16, primarily about this cosmic conflict between the Holy Trinity and the unholy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit versus Satan, first beast, second beast, who is also known as false prophet. Cosmic conflict between Holy Trinity and wannabe in 4 to 16. In Revelation 17, 20, you know, you hear about the conflict, but it's primarily roughly about the prostitute or the harlot. And in Revelation 21 to 22, it's primarily about the bride of Christ. So I'm doing this, but just hopefully it helps you. It's like the churches, and then the revelation of God splits, and then you have the prostitute and the bride. Where do we stand with God? Another thing I want to talk about before we dive into our chapter is the book of Revelation, as you may have known, is not as straightforward as the other books in the Bible. Um, it could be sometimes challenging to understand what's going on with all these things. But ironically, one of the main purpose of Revelation is just that, to reveal. Hence, it's called Revelation. It's not to conceal or to confuse it was to reveal. So what was the Lord revealing to the first century church who received this letter and why? And what is the Lord revealing to us principally and why? Um, this is going to be, I'm, I'm trying to cut time, so hopefully you'll bear with me. But before we dive into our text, uh, let's pray and ask for his blessings. Our Father in heaven, um, you have created the heavens and the earth, and you are God, the only God. There is no other God. Yet we have desired more of your creation and neglected you, our creator. Um, Lord, have mercy. You have loved us in so, so abundantly in such an extravagant way. You gave your, us your only begotten son, yet we have become gluttonous for love. We demand to be loved rather than sharing the love that you have already given us. 
Help us to love you, Father, and help us to love our neighbors. We have the best news in the world, Father, and um, we live in a time where it's becoming some, somewhat of a routine, um, something just to stamp ourselves with names or titles as Christians. Father, you've given us, you've given us a gospel far more important than that far more powerful than that. Father, help us to believe in this gospel, believe in you fully, and to stand firm in our faith, and help us to see and notice that you are the only God. Thank you for the way that you've loved us. Thank you for being patient and kind. Um, thank you for all the blessings and mercies which are new every day. Lord, at this time we ask for your blessings as we read and hear your word preached. Um, please be with me, please be with your church, that everyone here can hear your words clearly and that we would all submit. And also, um, Lord, that we would all come to see you anew, afresh, in adoration, and we will esteem you as our God. Thank you. Thank you in advance for answering our prayers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 16 is quite a lengthy chapter, but um, let's do our best to hear all of God's word. Before I read, I want to remind you that this is indeed God's infallible and inerrant word. There are, there are no errors and it does not fail. Hear now God's word. The apostle John records in verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be, exposed, be seen exposed. 
and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. A lot has happened. Um... There's so much that needs to be said, and again, there's little time, so I'm going to limit myself to only 14 or 15 points. <laughs> That's the limit. I hope not to go over. Well, before we start, if you remember the outline, chapters 4 through 16, there is this cosmic conflict between the Holy Trinity and the un unholy Trinity, the triune God and the trying to be lowercase g God. Um, the true God and this wannabe, this fake God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit versus Satan, first beast, second beast. This cosmic conflict. Both these gods, capital G and lowercase g, have followers. Um, there are followers of the Trinity, the true Trinity, and there's followers of this false Trinity, this pretentious Trinity. Well, as you, if you've been following along in our series or if you've been reading along, um, as we go through chapters 4 through 16, it becomes increasingly and undoubtedly clear that there is only one God and there is no other. There is but only one true and living God and there is no other. It becomes super clear. It becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. We're in chapter 16 today. We're at the end of that second outline bullet point. We're at the, the heels of this cosmic conflict. Um, so what is God trying to tell the first century church with this and why? And principally, what is he trying to tell us with this and why? It's, um, I think the primary purpose of chapter 16 is as simple as this. There is only one God and there is no other so as we go through each bowl and each bowl is poured out, it's like you can almost hear God saying, I am God and there is no other. And then all the implications of that, what does that mean? Ooh, all right, so 14 to 15-ish points. I'm gonna try to go fast, so if you're taking notes, Take a lot of notes as much as you can. But before we dive into our text, here's point number one. The true and living God, God is merciful. He is merciful. In our chapter today, there are seven bowls of judgment. In chapters 8 through 11, there were seven trumpets of judgment. 
the way these judgments happen are extremely similar. They affect the same, if not, you know, mostly the same spheres. But the one big difference between chapter 8 through 11, the seven trumpets of judgment, and our chapter 16, the seven bowls of judgment, is in chapters 8 through 11, the judgment was partial. One-fourth, one-third of the earth, one-fourth or one-third, I think it's one-third of the earth was afflicted. In our chapter today, it is not partial. It's intensified, the judgment is intensified, and it's final. What that means is at least chapters 8 through 11 is telling us God is merciful. God is merciful. How do we know? Because if he wasn't, he wouldn't include chapters 8 through 11. Judgment would just be final and immediate. We would all be judged immediately if God wasn't merciful. How are we not judged now? How do we not fall dead? God is merciful and his mercies are new every day. Have you trusted in God's mercy while there is time? Because God is merciful. Mercy means not giving what someone deserves. Mercy. God is merciful. Point number two, God is faithful. So chapters 8 through 11, and then we get to 14. Uh, in chapter 14, you see this picture of Christ with the sickle in his hand, and he reaps and redeems his own people. That happens before this chapter. What that means, presumably, is that Jesus Christ protects and preserves his own people from the pouring of God's wrath. The people afflicted here are not God's people. They are against God. They are anti-God. They are the kingdom of evil. But for those who are the, uh, the people of God, God is faithful. He redeems them. He protects them. He preserves them. All his words are true. How faithful is God? Well, even if death were to come at our door, knocking at our door, barge right in, forcible entry, and then dragged us out of the house and took, him, took us to his own grave, his prison, God is faithful. What will God do? God will come against death, grab you from the grave, and raise you to everlasting life. Not even death can stop God from being faithful and true to all his people, true to his promises that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will resurrect. God is faithful. And then we're going to start in our passage. We're going to go through a lot of verses. Point number three, God is supreme. Let's look at verse one. The apostle John recorded that he heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. How does this mean God is supreme? So remember in this cosmic conflict between the Holy Trinity and this wannabe Trinity, there's, I don't want to even call it a battle, but a battle, a cosmic conflict between the two gods, capital G, lowercase g. Notice here what God does. God speaks to an angel to execute his judgments. God does not even stand from his throne to fight. 
God doesn't even lift the finger to fight. God speaks and wins. Against who? Satan, that ancient serpent that from the beginning tempted, accused, deceived, killed, murdered millions and millions of people. That serpent, Satan, who is the greatest entity of evil. So terrifying if we were to come across him. But compared to God, God speaks and it's done. Remember Genesis 1? God creates all things. God speaks and so it is. God speaks and it's done. Satan is not an equal and opposing power to God. Satan is not a match or even a flicker, pun intended, compared to God. God is supreme and there is no other. No idols, no other gods can compare to this God. He does not stand. He speaks and sends angels to execute his judgments. God is supreme. Do you esteem God as such, as who he is, or is there something else that you esteem more, or something, something else that you esteem more? Nothing and no one else belongs in that place. Only God. God is supreme. Point number four. We're going along. God is holy. God is holy. He is set apart. We see this in the way that he judged people in the gravity of his judgment. So let's look at the first three um, bowls that are poured. If you look at verse 2, the angel, first angel, pours out the bowl of God's judgment of his wrath on who? Upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So what does God do? The people who bore the mark of the beast now bore the mark of the first bull. They have painful and harmful sores all over them. It's as if they start to look and feel and smell just as disgusting as their, fur, their little G-God is. Their God can't deliver them. They are obviously marked. And their marks show them who they really are. And it's, it's not a pretty sight. It's a pretty grotesque sight. But that's God's judgment. God is holy. He does not take sin lightly. And we see that also in the second and third bowl. If you look at verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Something similar happens to that in this third bowl in verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a dead person and blood around that, that person's body. When there's blood around a dead person um, and it's, that blood's been left out, it starts to um, smell and coagulate and clot. Uh, now imagine a whole sea of blood. Pretty nasty stuff. But this is his judgment. We're going to talk about why in a bit, but this is his judgment for these people. 
well, why does he judge the sea and then the rivers and the springs? What's, I mean, aren't they just water? Yes. Um, some, some theologians have said this, and um, I lean one way, but I'll just kind of give you the principle of it. The sea is like there's commerce, um, there's livestock, fishing, all this stuff. Rivers and springs of water is not seawater, it's fresh water. So in one sense, in every way of water, they are judged, bloodied water. So God is holy. He does not take sin lightly. There is no sin in that he ever counts as trivial. What sin in your life should you let go? But how do we know he's holy? If you look at verse 5 and you hear what the angel of the waters say, he says, just are you, O holy one. He is holy. This is who God is. Um, point number five, and we're going to see why the sea and the waters became blood. Point number five, in that same verse, in verse five, he says, just are you. God is also just. God is also just. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. There's something weird about that phrase. That phrase um, is a pretty well-known, should be a pretty well-known trifold uh, phrase. There should be three parts to that phrase. Who was and who is and who is to come. So where is the is to come in that verse? It's omitted. Why? Because God has come. God is just and he ha he's going to judge. Um, remember in chapters 8 through 11, the seven trumpets and a time for mercy? There is a time for mercy, but there's also a time for justice. God is just. God will bring to account every person for the thoughts, words, and deeds. If you are not in Christ, how will you deal with your sins? So why, why the blood? God explains, or the angel explains in verse 6. It says, "You, God, you brought these judgments for the people who bore the mark of the beast. They have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. So what does God do? So God has given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. When I say God is just, I mean just that. He is just. When we think about justice and people think about justice, sometimes our form of justice is totally off. Sometimes it's close to the moral law of God, but often it's not exact or precise. So if someone offended me, I want to get my revenge, but I come with a bitter heart or angry heart. There's something off about it. Sometimes I get more than I deserve to, to get. Someone steals $20, I get mad, so I say, give me $20 back. Oh, that's justice, but I also shame the person. Make him feel bad. God's justice is not like that. God's justice is exact. It is perfect. They get what they deserve. God is just. 
So if they got what they deserve, what does that mean about the bloodied sea and springs of water and the sores? You see the holiness of God in the gravity of his judgments. But you see the depravity of man and the gravity of their sins. This is what they deserve. The, the grotesqueness, it's what they deserve. God is just. How will you deal with your sins before a holy and just God? Point number six. We're almost halfway there. God is true. God is true. Let's look at verse seven. The apostle John records that he heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God is true. What's the point of this altar? Why is this here? Um, if you've been following along our series in Revelation, this altar um, appears several times. But in chapter 6, under this altar are the souls of the slain. What, what does that mean? Souls of those martyred for Christ. Their blood was shed and they're under the altar. This is what chapter 6 says. These souls, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? How long must we wait before judgment happens, before justice happens? And in our chapter today, we see his answer. You, you don't have to wait anymore. My judgment is here. What does that mean? God is true. He heard their prayers. God is true in every word he has spoken. God never lies. None of his promises have ever failed or fallen short. All of them are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You can trust people. You can trust your money. You can trust things but none of them compare to God, for God is always true. He never lies. What does that mean? When God says something in his world, when God gives you promises, you can bank on that with your life and know that it will be true. God is true. God will accomplish what he says. God is true. Point number seven, now we're halfway, maybe. Mm, a little bit less. God is creator. In verses 8 through 9, it says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. Um, it obviously doesn't say he's creator. I put that there as an inference. Uh, we know biblically God created all things. But why did I say creator here? Well, you see that the sun needs its permission from a higher up to do what to scorch the sun was given permission by whom yes the angel but before the angel god god sent the angel to the sun god is the creator interestingly the sun is here well the sun um it's warm uh, this past week it's been really warm or so i've been told In this 
in these two verses, the sun is not warm, but starts burning and scorching people. It starts afflicting people. Very, very hot. Burn. Scorch. This thing that we have in the sky as a form of mercy and grace now is a form of God's wrath. God is creator. Point number eight. God is also a de-creator or destroyer, and we see this in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. There's nothing that exists apart from God's will. And if God so willed, he can destroy anything, even the kingdom of the beast. This formidable, terrifying kingdom, God can plunge into darkness. He decreates. If he gives light, he can take away that light. God can literally destroy any kingdom he wants. How do we know? Because he destroyed this beast kingdom, plunged into darkness. God is destroyer. Point number nine, God is redeemer. If you look at verse 12, it says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. That uh, 12 through 16, what is going on? It's weird. Here's um, at least a summary of it. The great river Euphrates is dried up. Why? So that kings from the east can come. When these kings come and, um, and the fake wannabe trinity, they assemble and gather to fight against God, to wage war against God. But what happens? Well, they're going to lose, but that, that phrase, the great river Euphrates was dried up dried up what does that remind us of if you look at most of these judgments if not all of them there is this exodus motif behind it all darkness blood water that became blood that's all in the exodus what happened in the historical account the exodus long time ago god delivered the israelites from whom the egyptians how he split the Red Sea, and it was dried up so that they can pass. So what does that mean about the dried up Euphrates? I believe the Apostle John is saying, yeah, these people are gathering. They think it's going well, but you know better. You know what this means. When God dries up rivers, salvation and judgment, redemption for his people. God redeems his people. God is the redeemer. God is also almighty. Point number 10, God is almighty. You see that phrase quite literally in verse 14, for they are demonic spirit uh, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of, the, of God the almighty. I apologize in advance if I'm talking fast. There's a lot of points. So yes, God is almighty. It says that, God the almighty. But how do we know God is almighty? Well, in this passage, you know, because God defeats the world. <laughs> the greatest super evil power and the entire world gather and assemble to wage war on God, and they lose. 
what can anyone do? Who can stand before God? God is almighty. Point number 11, God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. When I say incomprehensible, I I don't mean that you can't comprehend anything about God. God has revealed things about himself that we can comprehend. He has given us a mind that we can learn and grow in our knowledge. But when I say God is incomprehensible, what I'm saying is you can never comprehend God fully with your finite minds because God is beyond our finite minds. God is incomprehensible. And we see that in verse 15. It says, behold, I am coming like a thief. What does that mean? A thief means you cannot anticipate him. You cannot prepare yourselves for when he comes. You cannot outsmart God. God is a genius. God has planned thousands of years at least, and he accomplishes it. God is a genius. God is incomprehensible. In that same verse, in verse 15, you see that God is kind. Why? He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. There's a lot with the garments. and I'm going to give a really short, brief, crude summary. When we think about garments, it represents what you put on, what you're dressed in. So biblically, you want to be dressed in righteousness, dressed in Christ, so that when God sees you, he sees righteous. He does not see sinner. So when G, or Jesus says this quote, blessed is the one who stays awake, he didn't need to say it. He didn't need to tell anyone that he's coming like a thief. But he's kind. He gives us this warning. He says, stay faithful, endure, persevere. I'm coming. He's kind. God is kind. Point number 13. We're almost towards the end. Man, we're flying by this. Point number 13, God is king. You see that in verses 17 all the way to the end, but I'm just going to read verses 17 and 18. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. God is king. If you look at 17 all the way to 21, what happens? Great, great, big, terrifying judgment. But I have an illustration for what that might look like or to help us kind of understand what's going on. Imagine a sandbox, and that sandbox is earth and everything in it. God, like that great earthquake, is just shaking that sandbox and sifting out the sand so that all these kingdoms of sand, these sand castles, if they cannot stand, they will fall. And they will fall. And there will be mass destruction. So that what remains is what is everlasting. His kingdom. His rule. He is king. God is king. And so that's why you hear all these destructive languages in the seventh bowl. 
our possible last point or second to last point. God is sovereign. In the seven angels, with the seven angels and the seven bowls, there are seven, what I like to call spheres, that were impacted or affected. There was the earth, there was the sea, there was the uh, rivers and the springs of water, there was the sun, there was the throne of the beast, there was the great river Euphrates, and there was the air. What does that mean? It means God's judgment was total. There was no sphere unaccounted for. Every sphere was affected. God is sovereign. God is in control. There is no hiding from him. He will, as you've seen in this entire chapter, he does completely undoes, if that's a word, undoes, 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 unravels, the kingdom of the evil one everywhere. God is sovereign. Do you believe that today? That God is sovereign no matter what? Okay. So, those are 14 points about God. If you want those points, just text me and I'll text you back or ask your friend. So, what is the point? Of Revelation 16. Why did what's the why did the first century church need to hear this? And why do we need to hear this? Let's imagine the first century church, the first church, uh, first followers of Christ. They're living in a time of uh, where the Roman Empire rules over them, and you know they allow for a lot of things in the Roman Empire. Um, you know, maybe a lot of freedom to worship, kind of sounds like America. But one thing that everyone must submit to is you must worship Caesar as God. As Christians, there is but only one God. So you can see the difficulty in which they live their lives. Sometimes they couldn't buy the things that they wanted. Sometimes they're shamed because they're not participating in pagan things. They get outcasted. They get quite literally persecuted. Um, They get hurt. They get murdered. So all this is going on, and then in 70 AD, their temple, um, the temple of Jerusalem is going to be sieged. The Romans will completely eradicate what used to be the Jewish religion. And there will be uh, a lot of bloodshed. Josephus, um, who's a historian at the time, records that there are these Roman ships that came into their sea, jump off the sea, and start slaughtering people. And you see corpses all over the sea, so much blood. Sounds like the second bowl. Um, Josephus also talks about kings coming and gathering to fight. Um, There's the first century church had it hard. 
it was very difficult for them to be Christians. It's, uh, we're very privileged. Um, we ought to be grateful for that. But for them, it was very hard. It quite literally meant their lives to be a Christian, to follow God, to not worship Caesar. So as the Apostle John is writing this, and then they read this out loud, they come to chapter 16, and what hits them in their faces is God is God, and there is no other. Caesar is not God. Your current emperor is not God. All this rule and tyranny of the devil that you see around you, they, he is, the devil is not God. And they're reading this like, how can this be? Life is so incredibly hard. How is this possible? If God, you're the ruler, what's going on? And he says, I will take care of it all. They cannot stand before me. They are no gods. They're fakes. Don't follow them. Persevere. Endure. And know that there is only one God and I am he. So they read this and they're probably maybe a little crying here and there and also great assurance, great comfort, great hope as they're living their incredibly difficult lives as Christian. What does this mean for us? Um, there are some phrases I skipped over. I'll comment on them right now. I think I have time. I tried to do it really fast. The people judged were all those people against God and, and for the kingdom of the beast or for the fake trinity. They were all judged. When they were all being judged, here was their response. They're identified, they're marked by the beast, and they responded with blasphemy. They cursed God. The literal Greek word is blasphemy. They blasphemed God. And they were unrepentant. The crazy thing is, they knew who they were blaspheming. It says they blasphemed God over the place, God of the heaven. They knew who they were blaspheming. Imagine the audacity and the arrogance of that. Maybe even a little self-justification and entitlement in there. It's like, how dare you, God, do this to my life? They blasphemed God, and they were still unrepentant. They didn't. They loved their deeds more than God. They loved their deeds to the point of, hating God, unrepentant. They refused to give God glory even though they knew God. Another way of saying is Christians will bow down and worship, but these guys will stand proudly and blaspheme. So how is this relevant to us? As Christians, we recognize that God is all these things. He's holy, he's just, he's supreme. There's only one God. We recognize all these things, and we recognize that justice must be had. 
that these judgments are just, fair, true, righteous. That they got what they deserved. And we also recognize that every human being will get what they justly deserve. But as Christians, we also recognize that Jesus Christ took that judgment for us. This grotesque, nasty, horrific judgment that when he was on the cross and he didn't deserve to be, he was on the cross because of our sins. For anyone who believes in him, all their sins were laid upon the sun and he drank the full cup of the fury of God's wrath and exhausted it. He drank it all so that not even one drop is left for any believer. These judgments happened on Christ already. And as Christians, we know that. And so as Christians, we are so grateful. We're so thankful. We're a little schizophrenic inside, like, oh, I'm so, but God, you, but I suck so much, but God, you're so amazing. To the point that we surrender all to him. And we follow him, even if it means carrying our crosses and death. And that's really hard to say. But we do that because he is not just God, but our God. So how does this all apply to us? There is no other God there is but only one living and true God. There is no circumstance that can ever outpower God that should ever make you shake and fear because God is still on his throne. He is supreme and there is no other. If that's true for the most horrendous horrendous war, the Armageddon, where the whole world wages war against God because they hate him. They hate him so much that they would willingly wage war until the dying breath before bending the knee. And God gets rid of them like that. It, since that's true, how ought we to live knowing that God is God? Like, what does that mean for your relationships, your marriage? What do you, are you so shaken by what someone else does that you forgot God is on his throne? That you want to avenge and exact justice yourself rather than trusting in God? When you come to having relationships with people, what, what are you afraid of that you would refrain from loving your neighbors? But Pastor Kevin, it costs me. It's not convenient. Yeah. But God says, love your neighbors. What are you afraid of? 
It's not convenient. But convenience isn't your God. You don't follow convenience. You don't even follow yourself. You follow Christ. You follow God. You have one king, and you know his kingdom is perfect and righteous. You know you want to be part of that kingdom because every other kingdom will fall like sandcastles. So some practical, um, kind of practical application. Where do we go from now? The Apostle John wrote this to reveal, one of the reasons he wrote this is to reveal the knowledge of God. He thought that was sufficient for them. There's so much more in the other chapters, but he thought knowing God is enough. So, friends, Christians, do you know God? And is knowing God your priority? If it's not, would you make him your priority for he is God and as Christians he is your God there is nothing and no one else that belongs in that place in that status so read your Bibles pray I'm, I'm betting most of you here saying yeah but I tried and I should I know I should Throw that all out. Read your Bibles. Pray. I don't want to pray. You know, sometimes I just... Then pray even harder. <laughs> That's my friend's solution. I copied that. It's like, when I don't want to pray, I pray even more. <laughs> How do you do I just do I pray. Pray. I want to give you a workout tip. Some of you hate working out, and I understand that a lot. It's just so... I don't know what the word is. Uh, that's the word. Well, here is a tip from a workout fitness. If you hate working out, maybe you just need to start by changing your program. What do you mean? Instead of working out one hour on your arms or on your legs, why don't you just do five minutes? Why five? Because five minutes is better than nothing. And you may enjoy the five minutes. Uh, okay. Five minutes, all right, I can do that. You do it, it's like, oh, all right, I worked out. And you, you, you like your program. It's not something you, it's not like eating something you hate all the time. Just eat something you enjoy and just make it enjoyable. Do kind of work around it, five minutes. And then once you find out that you like working out for five minutes, maybe you could do 10 or seven. Read your Bibles. I don't like, then change your program. Figure it out five minutes a day, and maybe you'll see, oh, this is not that bad. This is actually really good and glorious and fulfilling. Well, Pastor Kevin, that's great, but I don't even like to do five minutes or one minute. I, I don't like to read. That's totally fine. If you don't like to read, then go grab someone and let them read it for you. Call me. I'll read it for you. Hopefully. Sometimes I don't pick up my phone because I'm sleeping. But Figure out a program that works for you and know God. Read your Bibles, pray. Well, I don't like it having be read to me. I like, I like to be engaged. Okay, then call me. Let's have a Bible study. And let's just talk and, and talk about the Bible. Or your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
grab them, ask them. If they say no, that's fine. Go to another brother and sister in Christ. Figure out a program that works for you. And I keep saying program, but it's called relationship. Know God. It starts there. Know God. Pray to God. Here's the second thing. And, and, and this is quite terrifying. Of course, repent from your sins or from any other competition to God. Repent. Pastor Kevin, you don't know how far I've sinned. I'm pretty far gone. And what do I do? How do I come back? How do I fix all this destruction I left behind me? Here's, here's what God says. Just turn around and go to him. Just repent. Well, okay, let's say I turn around, but then all this stuff, don't worry about that stuff. Just turn around and go to God. Well, what's going to happen after? Don't worry about it. Trust in God's word. Turn around and go to him. Everything else will work out. Repent. No sin is trivial. It's not worth it. And you know that God is better. Here's the third thing. Um, this is not really coming from the text. It's coming from my heart to y'all. Love God. Third thing, love your neighbors. Please love your neighbors. When I say love your neighbors, that's exactly what I mean. Love your neighbors. Don't hate them. Don't love your convenience or your comfort. Sometimes I understand you need rest, things like that, but love your neighbors. I don't know how to love my neighbors. That's totally fine. Just grab me, grab a church member, and then we can start a conversation with whoever that stranger is or that neighbor is. Love your neighbors. It's inconvenient. Love your neighbors. You don't follow another God. You follow the only and true God. Love your neighbors. So for that specific third point rant, I challenge every one of you. I mean, if you got to go, I understand. But after the service, love one another. Take an interest. Ask some questions. Have small talk. Have deep talk. If you want to do deep talk, just do it. Ask them how they're doing relationally. Ask them how they're doing relationally with God. Maybe they really need your prayer. Or maybe they really don't want your prayer, so they need prayer. <laughs> Either way, love your neighbors. Um, Last rant, sorry about this. God's, the people alive are God's image bearers, which means they're quite amazing. Um, what is always stands time, what withstands time, it's not going to Yosemite all the time, although Yosemite is beautiful and things like that, but it's people. You want people in your life, and you want people at the end of your life. Why? Because they're image bearers of God, and there's something unique about that. There's something wonderful and divine and everlasting. If people are boring, 
then take a little break, and then try to love them again. Because that person is an image bearer of God. Love your neighbors. Repent, love your neighbors, and know that there is only one God, and you submit to him because he is the only God and a good God. And because this good God has given us everything already. No other gods is worth it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for Revelation chapter 16. Thank you so much for hammering into our heads who you are. Your justice, that is not something to laugh about. It's quite terrifying. And at the same time, we rejoice because it is justice. And we rejoice because Christ for all those who believe in him, has taken upon himself your justice, your wrath, and he has exhausted it so that there is none left for any believer. Father, somewhere along the line, we forgot or we've neglected that you are God and our God. Forgive us and have mercy. Thank you for reminding us. And please help us. There is no one else and nothing else that we would rather follow and surrender wholeheartedly to. And that's a very difficult and scary saying, but Lord, it is true. So help us. Father, there are um, people here who've been struggling for a long time in their faith. Please help us to love our neighbors. There are people here who are skeptical and uh, maybe bitter against the church or hate the church for so many reasons. Lord, help us to see your word. Help us to love our neighbors. And Lord, it's, it's a scary thing to love our neighbors, but you are our God, and we know that your way is perfect and good. Help us to see the glory of your will. Thank you so much for all that you have done, all that you will do, all that you currently do, and who you are. Thank you especially for your son, Jesus the Christ. Thank you especially for the Holy Spirit, who counsels us every day. You have never left us, and you have always been with us. Thank you for being our Father. Please be with us as we continue to worship you and rest on this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.